Hi, I'm Mike McGrath, host of You Bet Your Garden, right here on PBS 39. And I have a very special offer for our television friends. We have obtained a sizable number of little lucky duckies. So if you're a fan of the show and you're a fan of Ducky and you'd like to support public television and PBS 39 and specifically this show, we are prepared to send you your own little lucky duck for a generous pledge of $60 or more. You'll also get Passport, which will allow you to watch millions of previous PBS shows, and you'll know you did good by your old Uncle Mike. So to get all the details, visit our website, youbetyourgarden.org. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up at the end of the show, we have a very important question of the week. For those of you who are intending to start your own seeds of your tomato and pepper and cucumber and eggplant, um, for the coming season. It is much more difficult to start seeds successfully than to garden outdoors successfully. We'll reveal some of the secrets with a follow-up next week. This is really important, cats and kittens. In the meantime, lots of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Paula, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being had, Paula. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And where is Paula doing well? I'm in New Rochelle, New York. Oh, okay. You know, only New Yorkers can pronounce that correctly. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and I know if you live there, you don't stand in line. You stand online. That's correct, too. <laughs> yeah. All right. What can we do for Paula in New Rochelle? My question uh, is about tomatoes and limited garden space. Gotcha. I have I have a limited garden. It's about, I don't know, 8 feet by 30 feet, and I like to plant lots of different things. But I know you're not supposed to plant tomatoes, because I've heard you discuss it, in the same spot year after year after year. But I have some seeds that claim to be high-resistant to verticillium wilt and all the other wilts that happen. You pronounce uh, that perfectly. Okay. And I'm wondering, since my space is limited, if I use that kind of a plant or seed, if I can plant in the same spot again year after year. Uh, do you or know off the top of your head the variety name? This is called Galahad F1. Okay, okay. It's a hybrid. So it's that's a hybrid. A, it's a hybrid tomato. Um, right. Galahad would certainly imply a, a fighting spirit. Right, so that's true. when there are letters after the variety name of a tomato, they indicate that this tomato plant has specifically shown resistance to whatever the letters represent. 
V okay. for verticillium, F for fusarium, which is another wilt. That's um, there also. Right, there can be root knot nematodes, um, oh, uh, tobacco mosaic virus, the disease mm -hmm. that smokers give plants. Um, it's not guaranteed. Let, let's just go back because people need to know this. Okay. You, pl you plant a tomato in one spot the first year, everything goes fine. Right. But where you and I live, verticillium wilt, a living organism, is being attracted to the root system. Okay. Second year, you had great results. Why wouldn't you plant in the same spot again? Right. So now the verticillium is building up a colony, but you're not going to notice anything that second year. Okay. By the third year, now the organism has kind of built up a large biomass down there mm -hmm. around the roots of the tomatoes. And so what will happen is the tomatoes' leaves will start turning yellow at the bottom of the plant, and the yellowing will progress up the plant. Depending mm -hmm. on your skill as a gardener and the tenacity of the variety, there's every chance in the world you can get a good harvest um, from that plant in year three. But by year four, it'll be dead by July. Uh. Now, when we talk about the same spot, I like to indicate a two-foot footprint. For instance, right. when I make my tomato cages, they're two feet in diameter, okay. and that's pretty much because I'm always pulling them out at the end of the season, I know that that pretty much is comparable to the furthest uh, roots in the root system. Then okay. I make sure to leave a foot of open space outside the cage, uh -huh. and then you know, you've got your clear footprint, which you can use, I don't know, chopsticks, or what are those things you use the Dixie cups with, the little wooden oh, spoons? Popsicle sticks, right. And um, you know, outline that, and just right on top of the stick, year one, year two, year three kind of a thing. Oh. So, you know, that way you're not guessing. Also, one of the reasons I like to put crushed eggshells in the planting hole was is if you're as lazy as me and you didn't mark the spot and you're uh -huh. sure you grew string beans there the previous year, when you're digging the hole, you hit a thing of uh, fresh eggshells and you know, not here, it no. <laughs> So okay. with a, what we call a resistant variety, um, mm -hmm. I would actually read up on it because that sounds like a relatively modern tomato to right. me. And mm -hmm. the more recent the hybridization, I think the better they become at resisting these diseases. Okay. Um, I would say that for year three, a resistant mm -hmm. variety might not show the yellowing or at least it will occur later in the season, you might be able to coax a year four out of it. Oh, but okay. it's not Superman. You know, okay. bullets are not going to bounce off it in year five. You know? Right, right, right. And if they do, they're going to hit Jimmy. Right. So, okay. <laughs> so if I plant one year in one spot mm -hmm. and I move it next year to You don't have to. No, 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 no. Or, or, or after two years. After whatever. two years is very safe. And I can go back to that spot in year three or four? Four yes. or five? Well, I, I would give it two years. Okay. But also, a lot of this is just common sense and observation. If you yeah. plant in the same spot a resistant variety for two years and you see no yellowing whatsoever, then you move your spot. I would okay. say that original spot will be uh, clear of verticillium wilt um, after two more years. Okay, that I you get could, it. yes, go back in year three or four. Because that's the good part about this, is it the wilt will not exist in the soil 
without the symbiotic relationship of the tomato roots. They need each other. Okay, I got it. All right. That, now, that helps in it. addition yeah. to your resistant variety, and that's one of the first things we try to teach people is if you have uh, disease problems or space size problems, yeah, go with resistant varieties. But there are also um, tomatoes that are grafted. These are the tomato variety you want. Maybe it's black crim or Cherokee purple or uh, just so many, uh, Abraham Lincoln, oh, a okay. Georgia giant, whatever type of tomato you want to grow can be supplied to you grafted onto the rootstock of an otherwise crappy tomato. Oh. But the roots are incredibly resistant mm -hmm. to uh, be soil-borne wilts. And uh, they're available in catalogs at, at some really hip garden centers, oh, which I okay. believe you have in your area. There's I a, do, I It's do. a hotbed of gardening. I do. And um, ask them about grafted varieties. You might okay. just want to play with them for uh, a year and see what happens. But the important thing, as with grafted trees and roses, make sure the graft stays above the ground. Okay. If you bury the graft, you'll find out just how bad the tomatoes from the rootstock would be. Ah, uh, okay. All right. Okay. Um, that's great. Yeah. Can I just ask you, is it possible to put up a picture of your tomato cages? I've read about how you build them, but I can't quite visualize it. Yes, we, can, have... we can do that. Um, I'll tell you what, as we start to get them out of storage and install the garden, I have some brand new raised beds that I like to show off. Also, if you can find a copy of my um, You Bet Your Garden Guide to Growing Great Tomatoes, um, it explains everything and it illustrates it. So, Oh, that's great. That's great. Because I was battling squirrels last summer like crazy. With squirrels, and... you have to remember to keep uh -huh. some of the wire material separate and then twist tie that to the top. Close, to the top. So, so they can't get in. Yeah, okay, that's great. And by Thank the way, you, at any time yep. in the future, always use the technically accurate name. Evil squirrels. Evil squirrels. They were evil. They had more of my tomatoes last year than I did. And I did all that I could, but it wasn't enough. So I'm either going to make your cages or I'm going to put a roof over the top of my garden <laughs> and do the best that I can. They'll eat the roof. Oh, oh no. <laughs> all right, Mike, thank you. You've answered my question. This is great. Hung, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you here, Hung. Where, whereabouts are you? I'm in Dalewell, Indiana. Okay, very good. What can we do for you? Uh, I have a question. Last fall, uh, when all the leaves change color, start falling out. Right. I noticed a sprout appeared in my raised bucket. Mm-hmm. When, when the weather becomes colder, it starts growing. Right now, in the middle of the winter, it covers the entire surface of my raised pot. Really? Uh, does it yeah. does it look like a baby tree? No, it's going on the floor, looks like. And uh, it does not go in straight up. Right. And the color is very, it's kind of bright. If you see the pan, in the winter, only 
thing is green. Right. Most probably is the uh, evergreen pine. It's a needle, but this is a flat leaf. Okay. So you say this is growing in a pot, not a raised bed. Uh, sort of raised bed, but I did not. Uh, I use a plastic plastic pot mm-hmm. and put the dirt inside. And what had you been growing in that pot? Uh, I think I grew the tomato. Okay. Did that work out okay? Yeah. But this doesn't look like a tomato. No, it's not. What I'm going to suggest is because you used garden soil, uh-huh. uh, because we tell people to use a, a bagged potting soil when they're growing uh-huh. stuff in pots, because you used garden soil, you probably uncovered a couple of weed seeds and, ex- uh-huh. and exposed them to light. And they were probably growing in there while your tomato was growing. And then did you pull the tomato out when, at the end of the season? Uh, no, I just uh, cut them down. Okay. So now you've got some sort of colorful ground cover. How tall is this? Yeah, sort of. How tall? Uh, a couple of inches? No. Um, uh, let me try to see. It, it's basically just ground color. Right. And the color is? Green. Okay. It's flat leaves. Okay. And that is very interesting. Yeah. Um, and you like it, obviously. Uh, yeah. Okay. And it's in a pot. Yeah, it's in the pot, and uh, I just does not understand why flat leaf can be green oh, in yeah. winter. No, um, there are many plants that fall into the category of, quote, evergreen. Obviously, uh-huh. we know about evergreen trees like pines and spruce, but there's evergreen ground covers, a cool season grass like fescue uh, is green during the winter. It's really not that unusual. Have you tried to smell it? Does it have any kind of a, a smell to it? Uh, let me try. Okay. Crush up a leaf. Uh, no, n- no smell. No smell. But And is it outdoors or indoors now? Outdoor. Okay. And, and uh, I just measured it. Taller is the place about four inch. The all the other is hanging over the edge mm-hmm. of the this raised part. So it sounds nice. Yeah, it's nice. So what I'm going to suggest is why don't you e- either just leave it there or move the pot to a location where you see it all the time, and let's see what progresses. There's very little harm that can be done growing something. In a pot, uh-huh. it's not like it's going to spread throughout the rest of your landscape. And use your phone to take a couple of pictures of it. Send them uh-huh. to us, and I'll try to identify it and uh, do so on uh, a show coming up. How's that? Oh, yeah. I already sent two photos to Tavia. Oh, okay. Well, we haven't seen those yet. And people will probably think I'm crazy because they're going to drop them into the show. But um, we'll try to identify it for you and tell you if it's a, a good plant or a bad plant.
Okay. Yeah, I I thought if this kind of plant can be uh, really planted, it can provide some greens in the landscape, and also it kind of can produce oxygen in winter. Absolutely. It's, it's kind of good to the environment. Yes. Oh, yes. But don't plant it into the ground until we know what it is. Okay. It's safer to keep it in the pot. Okay. All uh, right. I will. Uh, I will ask the Tavia if she has received it because I emailed to her. Right. Right. But I'm not. Tavia is in another location. That's our producer, and I don't have access to that stuff uh, during the show. But I'll see it as soon as I get home. And you know what? Maybe we'll have you back on again next week and tell you what it is. Okay. Okay. That's great. Okay, hon? Yeah. That, that, that's fine. Okay, good. All right. Well, goodbye for now, and we'll get back to you. Thank you very much. I enjoy it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and warn everybody out there that seed companies, catalogs, and garden centers sold out early last year as millions more people joined the gardening ranks. And this season looks to be no exception. So purchase what you need the way we vote in Philadelphia, early and often. But don't go casting your net just yet because we'll be right back with more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Hi, I'm Mike McGrath, host of You Bet Your Garden, right here on PBS 39. And I would like you to become a member of our wonderful station. And to kind of lure you in, we have a lucky duck charm, a tiny little ducky you can carry around with you as a thank you gift for your pledge of $60 or more at YouBetYourGarden.org. This will support PBS 39, support public broadcasting in general, and more importantly, support my show. As a member, you will also get Passport, which will allow you to watch lots of previous PBS shows and current shows. It is a great deal, and it's all included with your membership of $60 at YouBetYourGarden.org. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later, we're going to get you started starting your own seeds. And you don't have to succeed. But if you're ever going to learn how to do this, you have to try. So stay tuned, and we will get you started on starting. In the meantime, more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Deirdre, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. 
Hello, Mike. Uh, I'm calling from Spokane, Washington. My question has to do with soluble fertilizers. I have a, a grow light set up in my basement, and I have a bunch of different things, including coleus that I start from cuttings. Good. And I also have some other house plants, and I'd like to start some microgreens and basil okay. down there. And then, of course, later on, I'll start my all my seeds for tomatoes and mm-hmm. peppers and all that stuff. So what I want to know is once I have a mature plant or, you know, it's no longer um, a seedling, mm-hmm. what kind of a soluble organic fertilizer would you recommend uh, for this situation? Okay, so tell me a little bit about your grow light. What do you got? They're just uh, inexpensive fluorescent lights. Okay. Cool li- they're cool lights. Right, and are they four-footers? Oh, yeah, they're long. I've got lots of them. I've got four of them on each shelf. Excellent, excellent. So you've got a four-tube fixture? Yes. And four bulbs, uh, four-foot-long bulbs? Yes. That is perfect. I have gotten such good results um, with that uh, type of lighting. A friend of mine yesterday was just asking me, um, he's been playing around with LEDs, and and when was I going to start doing that? And I went, I still have a case of, like, good fluorescent bulbs and eight fixtures. I'm not going to be changing anytime soon. So um, what do you use as your growing medium? I use a, uh, well, for for seed starting, I have a seed starting soil that's, uh, it's not exactly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, It hasn't been sterilized. I called the I called the nursery I buy it from before before right. you called me, just to make sure what was in it, what wasn't in it. And she told me that the only thing they put in their seed starter and their potting soil is some mycorrhizal right um, type of. Uh, okay, additive. so the the sterile seed starting soil. I I wish that term had never entered the hobby. Um, I think what people were trying to convey is not garden soil, because garden soil will have weed seeds, could have disease, things like that. So sterile in this case simply means there's no, quote, soil in the mix. Most good, high-quality organic seed starting mixes, you know, are essentially are exactly the same as what would be called a potting soil or a professional mix. You know, they're a combination of milled peat moss, you know, with some wood ash or some lime to adjust the pH up. So, because peat moss is naturally acidic, Mm -hmm. some compost or composted forest products, and either perlite and or vermiculite um, to both help the mix retain water and also help it drain better. Um, And then, in terms of... um, Organic potting soils like um, Espoma, like from Gardens Alive. Um, I've started to see some other brands showing up at retail. Obviously, what we have locally in our garden center is going to be different than what you have because those soils tend to be regional. The cost of shipping means they're, you know, put together Mm -hmm. close to where you live. But most of the ones I've seen, um, instead of chemical fertilizers, will contain added nutrients like worm castings mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of uh, uh, some, quote, meal um, that is somewhat high in nitrogen, like soybean meal, um, things like that. 
And so when we first put a seed into these things and, and water them and the seed comes up, the seed needs no food for the first, you know, at least four weeks until it develops what we call the, um, the first true leaves. Mm-hmm. Not those silly little leaves that come out first, the cotyledons or something like that. But when it gets true leaves, then you can gently fertilize. But if you're using one of these mixes that has a little bit of uh, worm castings or something like that, you really don't need to do anything um, for microgreens because you're going to harvest them so quickly. Mm-hmm. And coleus, which essentially needs no nutrition. You know, you're almost cheating growing coleus. I mean, if you drop it on the floor, it'll probably <laughs> root, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the only things that really I feed are, as, as you mentioned, peppers, cucumbers, tomatoes, you know, the starts that are going to go into the garden in the summer. And quite honestly, up until a few years ago, I never used to feed them either. Hmm. You know, I made my own seed starting mix a lot of times. There was a, a good amount of my compost in there. I have a worm bin, so I would, uh, you know, mix in some worm castings. Uh, but, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, my shoulder went out. I had to, like, figure out how to do things without a, a lot of physical uh, activity. And I started using some uh, very gentle liquid fertilizers. Um, Two that I really like, uh, there's a company called Neptune's Harvest that makes a wonderful fish and seaweed blend. But, you know, it's a little, it has an odor. Um, Espoma just came out with a line of natural liquid fertilizers that have absolutely no, no smell whatsoever. Um, and they're very gentle. They're like, uh, you know, a four, three, two kind of a thing, which is, which is really ideal for young plants. So really what you're, what you're doing, um, you know, if you have, do you have a worm bin? Do you have access to wormies or anything? No, that's one thing I haven't, uh, I haven't gotten into the worm thing. I do, I do a lot of composting. Okay. Um, but not the worms. And I, you know, I like the kelp fertilizer because it's so convenient. Yes, you know? yes, and, and there's no smell up. to it whatsoever, and it's not high in the basic nutrients, uh, but it has a tremendous amount of micronutrients, um, mm-hmm. things that most plants don't really have access to. And J.I. Rodell, the guy who created Organic Gardening magazine, always felt that plants that grew in water conveyed tremendous benefits to plants when they were used as fertilizer. So yes, I like kelp meal, I like the liquid kelp, uh, stuff like that. But if you're going to use your compost, you know what I would suggest you do? You don't need a worm bin. Uh, Did you ever make compost tea? I haven't, but I've read about it. I know about it. So if you just need a little bit, you take an old tube sock and fill that with your compost, tie it off at the top, and drop that into like a half a gallon of water. Let it sit for 24 hours, and then use it immediately. Um, Because all the living organisms that are now colonizing that water, um, they have a short shelf life. Mm -hmm. So 24 hours afterwards is when you want to water your plants with that. The bonus is you can take the stuff out of the sock and put it back in your compost. Um, It's still got a lot going. If you want to do this on a larger scale, 
um, much larger scale, you get an old pillowcase that you've always hated and, you know, a, a regular rolling trash can or something that, you know, has a solid bottom. Same thing, 24-hour rule. So after you feed the plants that you're doing indoors, take the rest of that compost tea and, you know, pour it around your spring bulbs, your trees, your shrubs, you know, back into the compost pile because it can get a little dry where you are. Mm -hmm. And you might have to wet your compost from time to time. And there's no better way to do that than with compost tea. All right? Okay, great. Thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate it. Elaine, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Oh, hi, Mike. How are you? I am just Ducky, Elaine. Thank you for asking. Where's Ducky going? Come back here, Ducky, and keep your mask on. <laughs> How is Elaine doing? I'm doing great. Where are you? I'm in Palo Alto, California, which I think is a zone 9B. Oh, yeah, I know Palo Alto. So you're, you're in a very warm zone. 9B is pretty much... As, as warm as we get. So you have no winter frost whatsoever. No, the bamboo is still green and it next to never snows here. And daily lows are around like 40 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so what can we <laughs> yeah. do for you? We, you talked about bamboo and previously about pruning. So I have a question about pruning bamboo. Okay. Um, I'm wanting to take out the bamboo and I want to cut it to the ground, remove it totally. But I'm not sure whether I should be doing this in winter Okay, so there is a field of what we call running bamboo, right? The classic bamboo uh, that spreads fairly wildly around. Uh-huh. And where is this situated in comparison to, say, your house and the road and any streams or anything like that? Um, the bamboo is between my house and my neighbor's house. Um, their side is like paved over with cement. My side is, you know, it leads into the um, garden area. Okay, so uh, your neighbor has protection by a concrete walkway, but your ground is wide open for invasion. Yes, pretty much. Ooh, how close to the house mm -hmm. is it now? It's about, um, I would say maybe about five feet to the house. Oh, it's there already. Look outside. Um, <laughs> You know, we call this running bamboo because especially in, in midsummer, the amount of ground this single plant can cover is amazing. And that's important to understand. When you look out at this bamboo forest, and admittedly, it is a beautiful plant. Uh, you mentioned you don't ever get to see snow on it. Well, I have to tell you, it's agonizingly beautiful to see bamboo mm -hmm. in the snow. But it is a mischievous plant, especially in your climate. Um, now, to answer your question directly, the middle of winter would probably be the best time for you to attack it um, because it won't be growing as quickly. It might even go a little bit dormant. But that is not a grove of individual plants. That is one plant, one common root system that sends up what we call culms um, as if they were branches on a tree. So there's no way to prune it and stop it. Did you say it was already in your flower beds? Well, I tried to, it's probably going there, but I tried to put an agate and maybe I should change that to like a cinder block um, barrier. What was the first thing you said before cinder blocks? Oh, an agate. That means just a, a shallow ditch 
um, between an empty shallow ditch between the bamboo area and the garden area. You know, that's not the worst idea you could have. Is there any way that you could fill the ditch with water, try to, you know, turn it into a little artificial canal, you know, almost like a pond where the water gets recirculated, maybe with a little waterfall at one end? <laughs> I wish I could do that, but I think in, probably not in Palo Alto because they, they have like drought, you know, measures and I'm just afraid that that would feed the bamboo more with water. No, bamboo is like a vampire. It can't cross <laughs> over running water. So a dry ditch, although it's a good idea and it's a great start, won't stop it. But again, I'm talking about recycula uh, recirculated water. You know, maybe even originally taken from your bathtub and your washing machine or things like that, gray water. Mm -hmm. um, and then have a pump in there that would keep it recirculating so you wouldn't get mosquito problems. Maybe a little ornamental waterfall. I mean, what I'm talking about would not be expensive. Digging the ditch is the expensive part. Mm -hmm. um, but to remove bamboo, it has to be dug up. And right. really, the only practical way to do that is, uh, you know, essentially with big machines, a front-end loader, you know, that kind of a thing. Oh. And uh, professionals, and I'm sure professionals in your area are very familiar with this, because I see a lot of bamboo down where you live. Um, they have a material called rhizome barrier. R-H-I-Z-O-M-E, because that's what the root system is called. It's called a rhizome. And they know all yeah. about this, and they would install it professionally. And a professionally installed rhizome barrier would keep the bamboo on the other side. And any bamboo that you have that got over to your side, that could be dug up and taken care of. But once you get that rhizome barrier installed, uh, It'll, then you can have this grove and enjoy it, but you don't have to worry about it moving into your house and changing the channels on your TV and everything. <laughs> yeah, it was a legacy plant. It's been there when we moved in, so, you know, it's a nice barrack, in, you know, for the... It is the one of the most beautiful yeah. plants, and I have a stand of bamboo um, that is also a legacy plant. It was old mm -hmm. 50 years ago, I'm told. And, uh, but it's on one side, there's a road. On another side, there's a stream. Behind it, there's a rock wall. And famously, mm -hmm. as I say, on the far side is my neighbor Willard, who mows it down three times a week. And, mm -hmm. and that works. But um, it is a beautiful plant. If you want to learn more about your options and maybe even get some recommendations for a landscaper who could do the work, go to the website AmericanBamboo.org. They, okay. they are the authorities on all things bamboo, and they'll explain your removal options. You know, removal is a you know kind of catchy term here, kind of iffy, but uh, your containment options are more important. And it sounds like you're already halfway there. Well, I hope so. I, I really want to, um, you know, figure out what to do with it. Okay. Especially, especially in a climate like yours where plants are growing for such a long, long season. It's really important to get it under control as soon as you can. Yes, yeah. I'm definitely going to try and do that. Okay. All right. Good luck to you. And again, that's AmericanBamboo.com. 
dot O-R-G. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Mike. I really enjoy your program. Oh, thank you I, so I, much. I, I really enjoy, um, you know, working in the garden and listening to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, I love your part of the country. It's just beautiful down there. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and urge Valentine's Day flower shoppers to avoid the boring dozen roses and go for something unique like red tulips, which, in the language of flowers, known as the floral code, are the only blossoms that signify the exact words, I love you. But don't go decrypting your daisies just yet, because we'll be right back with these steps to seed-starting success and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Lehigh Valley Public Media in beautiful, beautiful Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens. In just a little bit, we'll get to the question of the week, getting you started on starting your own seeds. In the meantime, more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. Norma, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Thank you, Mike. It's so good to be here. It's good to have you here, Norma. Where is here for you? I'm in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, What can we do you for, Norma? Well, I have started a small indoor garden to uh, just grow greens for salads. Don't have any insecticides and for organic stuff. They're growing well. I grow them from seed, and yet they are miniature. They never get over about... Two inches, and I, I don't know if it's the fertilizer or the soil or the light. Tell me about each. What are you using for what we call a growing medium? Well, I bought a good quality, um, $20 a bag. I guess it's good. It um, seems to be a good growing medium from a garden shop. It's potting soil? Yes. Okay, good. And what are you feeding them? I'm using an organic it comes in a squirt bottle. It's a 3, 3.5 ratio. That sounds absolutely fine. Now, what are we doing for light? The lights are, um, the grow lights, they're 12 by 12. They're a full spectrum. And on this tabletop, I have two of them that pretty much cover the tabletop. Now, you say 12 by 12. Are the lights really 12 feet long? No, inches. They're only a foot long? They're a foot square. Well, they are um, fluorescent lights, basically, right? They're a grow light. Well, that's just a, that's a vague term. What, what Are they tubes or bulbs? They're not tubes. Oh, they're LEDs. Oh, okay. For the first time, we'll be experimenting with LEDs um, very soon. But we had a guy on the show, a caller, months ago, who tried to describe these LED fixtures that you just screwed into a light bulb, and then they look like a miniature ceiling fan, but every uh, fan blade lit up very brightly. And just mm. a week ago, 
I'm watching TV and they do a commercial for one of these, selling it as a garage light, so to speak, because it's like 180,000 times brighter than the 60 watt bulb you got up in your garage ceiling. So I went online and there are literally dozens of these. I had a hard time choosing. I finally just, you know, randomly picked a pair and I'm gonna be trying those for the first time this year. Um, grow lights, that's not a term that anybody is checking out. You know, there's no legal definition of what a grow light is. Okay. And if your plants are still small, my first suggestion is going to be that they're not getting enough light. Oh, you said they're LEDs, so they're cool. They're, they are LED and they're not real warm, but uh, they do create some warmth in there. Yeah. And I think the, the height above the plants makes a big difference. Yes, yes. Uh, I have them about 24 inches above the plants. Growing herbs indoors is not the easiest thing in the world, but in my experience up till now has been with four-foot fluorescent tubes. And because they are truly cool, I keep mine an inch away from the top of the plants. How many bulbs are you using? Well, I have two of these 12-inch squares. Right. And as far as the bulbs, uh, each one of them must have, oh, about 100 tiny little lights in them. Have you tried lowering them down halfway, say a foot away from the plants? Well, I did have them lower. That's when they seemed to burn. Here's what I'm going to suggest, because I, I talked with a friend of mine who's really good at this kind of technical stuff, and he said this is still a business that is in the experimental stage. There's a lot we know and a lot we don't, but he says that he has been seeing the newer LED plant lights coming with little built-in fan, and that lit a light bulb in my head, because that's what we have in our computer towers. There's always fans running because these diodes do heat up. It just makes perfect sense that when you've got tons of these lights compressed together, you would have heat that needs to be dissipated. So one thing I did is I made sure the bulbs I bought were vented. They were open in the back to allow the heat to go up towards the ceiling. Here's what I'm going to suggest for you because there's a double benefit involved here. You know these little desk fans that people have to blow cool air on them when they're at the office and everything like that? They're not expensive at all. You can plug them into normal electrical circuit. I would drop the bulbs back down, and then I would have the fan trained halfway between the lights and the plants and have it oscillating so that it's moving back and forth. A little known trick for getting starts to be stockier and healthier is literally to have a fan on them, moving them around, or brush them gently across the tops. That actually encourages a more height, but stockier height, not the, not the leggy height. So I'd say keep experimenting with, um, with distance. Uh, get a ruler, get a, you know, a yardstick, and keep notes and see what happens at each new demarcation, but have that fan blowing on it. Okay. All right. I'll report in. Yes, please do. Please let us know how it goes. 
All right, as promised, it is time for the question of the week, which we're calling Seed Starting the Basics. In our last thrilling episode, we told Janine in Washington State that she didn't need to start her pea and bean seeds indoors for transplant outside later. But she also asked what was the best way to do such a thing. And it is getting to be that time of year, and millions more of you are preparing to do the gardening thing to avoid thinking about the pandemic that was caused by a virus named after a tasty Mexican beer. So, if you have never started seeds indoors previously, be prepared for failure. But by all means, do it anyway. Seed starting indoors is very different than gardening outdoors. And the only way you're gonna figure out how to do it well is by making mistakes. Speaking of which, my sincere apologies to the cannon fodder seedlings that died an ignoble death on my chilly windowsill many decades ago so that I would eventually become surprisingly good at this. That said, there is absolutely no shame in buying plants that were professionally started after you killed yours by week three. That said, containers. This is not the time for an egg carton kindergarten project. The plastic six packs, four packs, and onesies that garden centers use are made of the right material and have the proper depth and drainage. If you haven't saved up any yourself, ask a gardening friend for some of theirs. We have thousands. Gardeners never throw anything away. Or ask your local independent garden center to toss you a few when you buy your planting medium and seeds from them. And strongly imply that you'll probably be back in six to eight weeks for replacement plants. The planting medium. This is not the fortune teller who predicts the exact day your starts will die, but the non-soil you will use to fill your containers. It should not contain any of your wretched garden soil or any old potting soil you have used in previous years. If your clever plan to save money involved either of these non-options, there's a bus leaving for Des Moines at midnight. Be under it. So, yes, with money, buy a premium planting medium. This may be labeled potting soil, seed starting soil, pro mix, or soil free mix. It will contain milled peat moss or core, which is shredded coconut fiber, perlite and or vermiculite, and compost or quote composted forest products. It should not contain nasty chemical fertilizers like miracle Grow or Osmocote. It should also not contain water-saving crystals, which are bogus and slimy and bogus. It is fine if the mix contains small amounts of natural fertilizers like worm castings and such. Now, you're probably not going to find a really clean mix at big box stores, where you should only be buying batteries and light bulbs anyway. Support your local independent garden center, and they will support you. The system. Fill your containers with what we will now simply call potting soil for simplicity and for the use of not too many words. 
fill them to the top because they will shrink a bit when they get saturated. Place these containers in an inch or two of clean water, not city tap water, and allow them to take the water up through their drainage holes. When the containers feel heavier, add more water to the sink or wherever they're sitting and let them saturate completely overnight. Now you won't have to worry much about watering during this stage. When the containers are heavy as heck, do whatever you need to to drain the excess water out of the sink or whatever, and then let the containers sit for an hour or so. Then lift them up and place them on a stack of old newspapers. What? No old newspapers? What is wrong with you? At least buy your local Sunday paper and get paid back with the coupons. Place these super-saturated containers on a moisture-proof surface or an old baking pan. Sow two seeds in each individual container, also called a cell, and cover them with about half an inch of that good quality potting soil. Now, mist the surface. If you don't have a mister, go to the freaking dollar store wherever and get one. Oi, what am I, your mother? Cover your saturated, planted, and misted containers with saran wrap or some cheap generic version of that famous cling-free plastic wrap. Now you have a choice. You can either place these containers on a professional heating mat, amortize the cost over decades if, like Scrooge McDuck, you're adverse to spending the first dime you ever earned, or just leave them out on the warmest countertop of your home which is fine for tomatoes, but maybe not so good for peppers, which really love bottom heat. Examine your dead plants to be daily and miss them again if you don't see moisture beating up on the inside of the saran or saran-like wrap. After the first green sprouts appear, congratulations, you're a third of the way there. Remove any saran or saran-like wrap and turn off any heating mats. We now enter the whitewater rafting part of this river. Light. Your so-called sunny windowsill is closer to a war crime than proper plant parenthood. How cold does that window get at night? How long does it get sun during the day? Is that sun even coming in at the right angle for photosynthesis? The answer is no, unless you're living in Australia or near Skull Island, whose coordinates I will reveal during the Mike McGrath was created by portion of the show, so stay tuned. But for now, we're out of time. Next week, more about the right light. Well, that sure was some interesting information about starting your own seeds now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be YouBetYourGarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you'll always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producers threatening to sabotage my starts if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched, refuse teeming towards our garden shore. 
at YBYG at WLVT.org. Please include your location. You'll find all of this contact information at our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, where you'll also find the answers to all your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of previous shows, details on getting your own little ducky, and our priceless, internationally renowned podcast. It's almost more than we can handle. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Radio and Television in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in beautiful Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when the skipper of a tramp steamer headed south-southwest after reaching the coordinates of 2 degrees south, 90 degrees east, as described by the lone survivor of a Norwegian shipwreck. The eighth wonder of the world, Ken Queter, plays our theme song and cannot be restrained by chains of chrome steel. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer and official keeper of Ducky is Jersey Fresh Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Tavia Minnick is our priceless producer of Profound Production. The lovely Jonas Bowen is our audio editor. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Andy Cummins takes our temperature at the door. The monster from Planet Zero, Zach the Tack Wisniewski, is in the house. Maybe. If he is, he is probably assisted by the usual gang of idiots, otherwise known as Bethlehem's answer to the Bowery Boys, including Eric Werner, Jacob Morris, Jeff Frederick, and many more too expensive to mention. Our CEO and imperious leader is terrifying Tim Fallon. Or, as the ship's captain said, why yes, I've heard that name. The natives say it's some kind of god or monster holding the island in a grip of terror and always late for a meeting. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. I'm growing pepper plants indoors, listening to Phil Oak's albums, and still trying to find the best route to Skull Island. I would have made it there years ago, but I refuse to stop and ask for directions. But I'll still see you again next week. Is galvanized steel full of zinc? How many kinds of burrowing mammals do gardeners in Kansas have to contend with? Or could the question of the week be the promised treatise on keeping your baby plants alive after they sprout? I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next You Bet Your Garden, we'll discuss one of those tantalizing topics, plus your fabulous phone calls. 